Now, good morning. Happy Sabbath. Well, let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for a beautiful day of rest. And we thank you for the day of rest itself and for what it says about your character and the God that you are a God of freedom and that you are not uh, the God that Satan has uh, alleged you to be. We ask that you guide our study this morning. Uh, please keep me out of the way and uh, help me elevate uh, your character to where it needs to be presented. We ask for blessings uh, with Tim today uh, and ask that you bring us safely back uh, to this group in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we want to remember Tim. He's in prison today. <laughs> said something about unpaid parking tickets. I didn't get all the details, but no, I'm joking. <laughs> Tim is in uh, Folsom Prison today, him and Johnny Cash. One of our board members, Susan Kohlenberg, has been using his book, Could It Be This Simple, in her personal ministry, the women's prison at Folsom, uh, Folsom County Prison in California. And she has been documenting objective, measurable results in the uh, in her audience. Um, decreased fear circuitry, decreased um, acting out, decreased uh, acts of violence, uh, decreased recidivism. Um, and just measurable, documentable um, changes in the in his in the audience that she's been presenting to. So she's been working hard to get uh, Tim to come out and do a lecture, uh, do a weekend series. Uh, and the original intent was for him to present to, I don't know, 60 to 80 people in a in a open room where they could have some attendees. And we're going to film it to replace our Healing of the Mind DVD series, which is more than a decade old. Well, apparently... Uh, the Lord moved on the warden's heart, and the warden got wind of it and said, "No, no, no! This is we need to we need to open this up to the entire population." So he's going to be in the prison yard, uh, presenting to the entire women's prison. So the Lord's moving mountains for for us out there, and we uh, you know we want to remember them in our prayers. All right, we're we're doing lesson thirteen today, the last lesson in the quarterly. Uh, for the second quarter. Uh, it's called The Return of Our Lord Jesus. Um, that title alone should give us some goosebumps. How many of you remember when thinking about the second coming of the Lord made you afraid? Or does it still? I do. I remember being in Pathfinders on camp out and, and waking up in the middle of a night with a nightmare that that I literally had a vision of the Lord. My, my young 12-year-old vision uh, my mind, uh, a vision of the Lord coming. And I didn't sleep the rest of the night. Okay, and that continued well past me being 12. <clears throat> uh, and the, the particular memory text, for as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So what's kind of, uh, what kind of visions does that conjure up? Lightning, lightning striking. Big storm. Big storm. This conjure up visions of God using lightning bolts to, to slay the wicked. Or am I the only one? So previously it was the nightmares element, and now it's wonderful anticipation. That's right. Yeah, thank you. That's that's correct. My my, I, I'm no longer terrified of the second coming of Christ. That's right, Linda. These days, I think that. The reason every eye will see him is that he's he and his entourage are so large. I mean, the, we're compared to a you know like a drop in the bucket <laughs> to him. I think he and his entourage are so large that we'll actually be surrounded. The whole earth will be surrounded by. It. There's no way you can miss it. I I think that's right. I think sheer sheer numbers and volume and and space. I I think that's correct. Any other thoughts as to, I mean, does it, do we think it's a, a literal seeing with open eyes, or do we think it's a, um, you know, being broadcast and watching it on our smartphones? There's too many people that don't have smartphones. <laughs> Thank you. 
<laughs> Thank you. She said there, there are too many people that don't have smartphones. She thinks it's a literal. I think it's also a literal. Yeah, sub-Saharan Africa. I don't think smartphones have made it uh, there yet much. His reality doesn't depend on our technology. Correct. Thank you. Well said. I think it's referring to the speed of what it's going to have, just how quick it's going to happen. He he said he thinks it also refers to the speed of it. Um, yeah, lightning is not exactly a slow process, is it, either? Previously, I always thought that this verse always took my mind back to the secret rapture type idea, where the Lord would come and snatch some away like the Left Behind series. You know? But if you look at that verse, it's lightning. Everybody sees lightning when it comes, you know. So everybody will see the Lord when he comes. Right. I haven't delved into the rapture theory, and and frankly, from my my reading of scripture, I, I don't know where it came from. I can't I can't wrap my mind around the the origins of it and the the possibility of it. It, it, it I think they're it, it may be they're drawing that theory from that one text where it says two women will be you know grinding grain, one will be taken, one will be left behind. Two men will be this, that, and the other. Um, to to form an entire theory from one text is, is dangerous. I have a blind friend that thinks that's when she'll get her sight. <laughs> um, I hope she's right. So this event of the of the Lord coming is it going to be is it going to be elation for everyone? It'll be a reality check. Those who have been deceiving themselves with the lives they've themselves are real. You know, I'm, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree. I, I don't think of the second coming that, that everyone will be convinced of that reality. I, I, think the, I think the wicked on earth will be petrified. They'll be terrified. They, they still won't, quote, know God. They, they will, they'll still be operating on a fear construct. Uh, and a hatred construct, they'll be begging for the rocks and trees to fall on them and trying to hide themselves in caves. Um, I don't think that the lies, the distortions and lies they've told themselves will be burned away until the third coming. But I'm, your point's well made. Yes, sir. Seems to me like some of the intellectuals in the crowd of the centers will be grasping for some scientific explanation for why is all this happening. Okay, trying to trying to uh, make a, a human theory, a human uh, explanation, a, a scientific so-called explanation for the events. All right, we'll keep these things in mind as we uh, move throughout the lesson. Uh, this is from Sabbath's lesson from a poem from T.S. Eliot. The poet T.S. Eliot began a poem with a line, quote, In my beginnings is my end. However succinct, his words carry a powerful truth. In origins exist endings. Uh, from the lesson. And the lesson draws some comparisons, some contrasts and comparisons from Christ's second coming to the creation. And it correctly emphasizes Christ as the creator. Is... Is recognizing Christ as a creator, is that the only thing that matters? Can we name any other groups who recognize Christ as a creator but didn't know him? Thank you, the ones who killed him, the, the Jews who were on earth at the time that he was. Okay, it's... I don't know for certain, but it's unlikely that they believed in evolutionary beginnings. They didn't think Jesus was the creator. They thought he was, you know, lying. <laughs> okay, that's fair. They didn't think he was they didn't think he was the son of God. But why didn't they think he was the son of God? They had presuppositions on what they expected to see, and he wasn't it. That's right. They didn't know they didn't know God. Or God's law. Doesn't most of modern-day Christianity, at least Protestant Christianity, don't they believe in a, in a creator? 
with in, inroads are being made with evolution. Don't get me wrong, but I think I think a majority of Protestant Christianity believes in uh, in a creation beginning. Certainly here in the South. Yes, sir. They're confused about the actual day, twenty-four hour period. Some more and more are suggesting that it was God that created everything, but it wasn't necessarily in that week time. In a literal six, six days. Uh, yeah, I'm. You know, Satan has quite a few, quite a few theories abounding. Yes, ma'am. I've heard the argument that some people think evolution is equivalent to God being the creator; that He created the earth via and, and all its create all its beings via evolution. So He used evolution as the mechanism for bringing forth life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There, there are countless, uh, countless theories to. Um, Inspire distrust uh, in the plain wording of Scripture. Catholicism is actually on board with that now. With what? With what she just suggested. Oh, that, that evolution is the mechanism that God created, that God uses for creation. Absolutely. Lovely. Okay. What it, does it? Doesn't it matter the cre- the character of the Creator? Doesn't his character matter? Does that add some nuance to the fact, to the belief in creation? Is it damaging to believe that Christ, as our creator, will kill his children if he doesn't get our love in return? As well as the invitation of the personal relationship that's involved with creation, walking in the evening, uh, every evening with them, the calling out, where are you? Uh, the drawing of that personal loving God of us to Him by His constant. <laughs> yeah, uh, think back. Think back to Creation Week. I, I remember we were playing a board game one time. This is fifteen plus years ago, and it was a. It, you just draw a card. You ask a person a question, and they had to. You know, you you give an answer to the question. And it's. I don't even remember the name of the game, but I remember the question I got was if you could go back. To any one-week period in time in history, what would it be? I immediately said creation week. Uh, my partner, the girl I was dating at the time, said the crucifixion. And, and, then we, and then it inspired some debate. I guess that was the whole point of the game was to, you know, figure out why you answered what you answered. Um, and, I, you know, I said to her, I said, you know, have fun. I, I, I don't, I don't want to see my savior being killed again. I want to see, I want to see creation. And think about it for a minute. Think about speaking animals. Think about speaking our galaxy into existence. However, however, you know, whatever scientific methodologies were used is way well beyond me and always will be. But think about the, the speaking of things into existence. And then, then that, that amount of power available he kneels down and, and forms man from dirt and forms woman from man's side and think about the intricacy of the human systems the nine human systems think about how intricate and complex they are and this was done by the hand of of christ himself and your partner's the calf watching the creator give his life and seeing the love to be a witness to how much he loves us. Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, I don't think that anybody could ever witness in their whole life. Way above creation. Well, I think both both creation, creation was an, an evidence of God's law. Uh, the the um, incarnation, uh, crucifixion, revelation, uh, and, and resurrection were greater evidences of God's character of love, as will the second coming and the third coming be, and the destruction of the wicked. Yes, sir. Without a perfect creation at the beginning from which we've fallen, the whole idea of redemption and healing to a perfect state doesn't really make any sense. Oh, yeah, that, that's a great point. You know, if, if, we were, if we were created defective, or if we evolved defective in the first place, What's the point of of uh, restoration? What are we being restored to? To answer my answer to your questions would be: I, I it's a dark side, 
But I would like to witness the week that the fall took place. Because on the one hand, you've got these perfect people who start out trusting God and their Creator and looking into His face when they drew their first breath, converting to, we don't trust you anymore. I, I, I can't get my mind around that at all. I don't know if I ever will throughout the ages of eternity, but it's... it's a Well, sadly, I can, because I do it every day. I'm <laughs> um, you know, born with that DNA, born with that from a... You know, a sinful mother and father, it's part of my genetic code. And without God's grace and, and healing, that that's the trajectory I'm on. Yeah, oh well, I don't want to see that either. <laughs> so to each his own. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying, I'm not, I wasn't trying to make the point that my answer was right, to the question was right and hers was wrong. Not at all. If, that's, if she wanted to see that, God bless her. If you want to see the fall, if you want to hear the conversation with the serpent, if you want to know what's going on in Eve's mind and then Adam's mind, <laughs> God bless you. Um, that's the struggle that we still face in my own life, like she's now noted. And I thought, man, if there's some way I could get separated from that. <laughs> yes, sir. The one thing that I, I noticed is that the devil wanted to be equal with God. He wanted to be, he said, I'm an angel just like Jesus is an angel, and I want to be equal with God. The only, and what God can do is create, and what we can do as humans is create. The devil cannot create. Um, the only way that he can create is to evolve things. And so evolution is the devil saying, I am equal with God. I actually see it differently as in of absolutely loving God, giving the capability to adapt to his creatures so that they can adjust to the brokenness of the world and as it deteriorates or if your environment is different, that he has lovingly given them the adaptability to, to function better in whatever, or, or to function in whatever situation that, that they have now uh, found themselves in. But then that also begs the question, in heaven, as we are restored, what changes will, will, uh, will we see? You know, we talked about the, the bill of the one bird, how it changed over time to, to adjust yes. to the food source. Uh, what, what variety will still exist? Yeah, I, I agree with adaptation that God created us to adapt. I don't think any of us would be here today if God had not created us with the ability to adapt. If I may rephrase, you're, you're suggesting that Satan has, has taken that adaptability and made it his own right? And, and claimed. The other thing is evolution requires death to create. It's survival of the fittest is death to create. God does not use death to create. Yes, sir. Very controversial. says that if there was one sin that brought the destruction of the antediluvian world, it was the sin of amalgamation. So that would cross breeding of species and that type of thing like you were suggesting. We're talking about the second coming of Christ. How does the second coming of Christ fit into our understanding of design law? how life was designed to operate. I said earlier that the creation was a, a revelation to the universe of design law. And the fall was a revelation to the university, universe of being out of harmony with design law. And we've had however many thousand years to witness that. I said the incarnation... Uh, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ was also a revelation of design law. And his second coming, how does his second coming fit into design law? How, how does it, how does it harmonize? Because I have heard from countless pulpits that the only reason Christ is coming back is to rescue his children and to kick ass on the wicked. That's it. It's, you know, I was right. See, told you. Check me out. Clouds of angels of glory on my throne. Take that, pilot. Okay, uh, really? 
Are, are we to believe that that's, that's Christ's attitude when he comes back? No. You had your hand up. You asked how does his resurrection reflect the design law. Yes. And I was thinking it reflects that the harmony of being rejoined with God, he can fix things, he can heal you, he can rejuvenate you, he can recreate you, so you can have life everlasting. Okay, in harmony with John seventeen three, This is life eternal, that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you did thou hast sent. I'm wondering whether God is in some sense um, preventing the full consequences from design law now in that if he wasn't intervening because of our sin, we would already be dead. So it's, I think at the second coming, he kind of lets design law take its course more, whereas now he's... Well, well, certainly Scripture tells us that the, the, the angels are holding back the four winds of destruction. We read that in Revelation. You know, hold, hold, hold until, until the people are sealed, either in their foreheads or their hands. So certainly Satan uh, is operating on this earth with some boundaries and restraint. You know, God says, you may go this further and no, no further. This is, you may go this far, no further, like he did with Job. He said, okay, these are your boundaries. Do what you will. So, yeah, I, absolutely. And as, as the Holy Spirit gets progressively rejected, is either people exercise their free will, which is God's design law, their freedom of choice, uh, and their, their decision will not be coerced by, by heavenly forces, as they exercise their freedom of choice to choose to operate under one Christ's banner or Satan's banner, then the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth and love, will be slowly withdrawn as it's rejected. The forces of Satan will have greater liberty to operate. So yes, I, your statement about us being in a shielded, protective uh, bubble where God restrains uh, the forces of living outside of, uh, out of harmony with God's law, I think that's absolutely right. I was going to say that. that okay. The winds of strife are, are held back until the time of trouble. So yeah, he's right. It seems to me, too, that there's a demonstration of his character. He comes um, out of love to rescue. And certain people will be afraid of that rescue, won't be rejoicing in that rescue, they'll be running from that rescue. So mm-hmm. it shows the, con, the um, difference between sin and um you know, when we love God, we'll be glad to see him, versus if we have turned against God, we'll be terrified when he comes, even though he came for good things. Okay. Yes, sir. It seems to me like at the fall, God's design law was not changed one jot or one tittle. That's right. So what did change? The devil, the snake, uh, implying that this design law was imposed law. So to me, the bottleneck of Christ's return seems to center around trust, the same same as it was at the fall. And do we today trust that if you fall off of a cliff, you'll get hurt? Okay, so whatever the rest of the design law is that we're still grappling to try to understand, trust measures, to me, the biggest in it. And... If God is as loving as we think He is, then He's delaying His coming because He wants more of us to trust that He's telling us the truth. That's a fair point. That's why Israel Yeah, they didn't trust His guidance. They didn't trust His uh, protection. All right, Sunday's lesson, the day of the Lord. Uh, This is a quote from the lesson. There's no question that, quote, the day of the Lord will be a a day of destruction and sorrow and turmoil for the lost. But it's also a day of deliverance for all of God's people who are, quote, found written in the book. Bless you. (laughs) This theme, that of the day of the Lord, is a time of judgment against the wicked, but also a time when God's faithful are protected and rewarded. It's first found in the Old Testament. For instance... Although some will face the Lord's fierce anger 
Those who heed the call to seek righteousness and seek humility will be, quote, hidden in the day of the Lord's anger, referencing Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3. Okay. My first question, when, when, when I read a paragraph like this, I read it differently than I did 10, 15 years ago, thankfully. So my first question is why? Why is the second coming a day of destruction and sorrow and turmoil for the lost? I think it's a simple answer now, but but think about it. why. Why is it a day? Why? Why are they sorrowful? Why? Why are they? Why are they destroyed? Why are they in turmoil? It's a sad end to a sad story. You know, I mean, it's a the wages of sin is death. Okay, touched on something that sin pays its own wage, and but the the, the wicked. What what have they done with their characters? Hardened they've hardened their hearts. Okay, they've exercised their own their own free will to choose a different pathway. Linda, the Old Testament says wickedness burns like a fire, and so people it's not God rejecting them so much as them having rejected God and changed themselves or kept themselves from being changed to the point where they can tolerate His presence. He's a consuming fire. And only the righteous can live in it. According to Isaiah 33, our God's a consuming fire. Who can dwell with the eternal burning? The righteous can dwell with the eternal burning. Those who haven't... It'd be like if you knew something about you was toxic. If you had Ebola or something, you couldn't be around your, your children. If you ever wanted to be around your children, you had to either create... <laughs> this is a poor example, but I'm trying to say... <laughs> It's not related to God, but I'm trying to say if there was something about you that was toxic to your children, they had changed to the point where they couldn't be in your presence without dying, you would do everything in your power to try to find a fix for that. To And so he did something that took his own life to create a fix for that, but he did. But when we don't take that remedy, we don't change back to the point where we can tolerate his presence. It's uh, We would... We would look at it as being tortured by God, but we would be tortured by because His His presence. He's come back to take His world. His presence is toxic to us now. We can't we we can't tolerate that. Are there any any scriptures that are ringing any bells in your heads? That, that when we're talking about this subject about uh, the the state the state of the um, the state of the lost uh, at the second coming. Any any scriptures ring any bells? Anything pinging in your computers? Whatever state you live when you come, that's where you're going to be. And then a second chance. The wailing and gnashing of teeth, the crying of the rocks. This is from Revelation 19, verse 15. It's talking about Christ at his second coming. <clears throat> from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Okay? This is a strongly symbolic text in a strongly symbolic book. So the sword coming from Christ's mouth, what is it symbolic of? The truth. Okay, what comes from our mouths? talks about the sword and the truth. From our mouths comes speech, words. Truth and lies. Okay, and our speech is a revelation of the state of our hearts, according to a different scripture. So coming from Christ's mouth, as Linda said, is truth. Okay, he doesn't speak he doesn't speak lies, he speaks truth, and he speaks it in love and he leaves people free to decide on it. So pure glorious truth is what the sword coming from Christ's mouth is symbolic of. I found it interesting that if you move the word, if you move the letter S from sword, you get word. <laughs> Different text, 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. The coming of a lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, now, how, how on earth, I missed, 
this connection in, in high academy and college and 15 years into adulthood, I'll never know. It was there. It's been in Scripture for a long, long time. But it didn't register here. Yeah, I think this is fairly plain. Scripture, the Word of God tells us that the wicked are destroyed because they despise truth. And how do we how do we understand this this second part of the text? It says, "Therefore, God sends them a delusion; they may believe, so they may believe what is false." Does God change their brains and and in order to make them believe a lie? Did He do that to Eve at the tree so she believed the Satan, the serpent? God always gives freedom of choice. He just simply allows them to go that path. Often said to do what He simply allows in Scripture. Let me take your comment first. And, you know. Well, I was just going to say that God allows people their choices. Right. You love somebody so much, God in <clears throat> his love wouldn't take them to heaven because that person would be miserable around peace, love, and joy. They didn't choose that. Now, through eternity, that would be, that would be punishment. It would be hell. Yes, for that person. So that helps me. I love this person so much. I wouldn't want them to go through eternity miserable. Right. What happens in our what happens in our brains because of the way we were designed if we reject truth? Okay, if you reject the truth that the earth is shaped as a sphere, what happens in your brain? Believe something else. Okay, the, the world the world's not a sphere. Okay, if you accept that as truth, you reject the truth that the world is a sphere. Therefore, you think, well, the world is flat. Does that affect your life? There's a guy recently that made a rocket and shot himself up in the air to try to prove that the world was flat, and he yeah, yeah. I saw that clown. <laughs> Multiple vertebral fractures when he landed. Okay, so yeah, his mind was changed trying to prove that the world is not a sphere. If you reject truth, what's the only thing left to believe? you only left to believe a lie. But just as lies go, if you choose to believe one or fabricate one and hold that as quote-unquote truth, it requires a domino effect of progressive distortions of truth. Right. As you have things that counter, you know, the, the real truth and reality tries to press in, and then there are progressive denials. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good grief. So for the example of that is I know someone who thinks that the world is flat, and to support that, now she has to have the perception that all the photographs that NASA take are all photoshopped and fabricated. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. No, no th- th- you're absolutely right. You, you have to, you have to, once you reject a certain truth, you have, it mushrooms. You have to reject nor- uh, lots of other truths and believe lots of other lies. Think about the kid who ate a little Debbie and mom came home. Where, where's the little Debbie? I didn't eat it. That, that lie multiplies tenfold, a hundredfold. It's never, it's never just one. And the mental energy required to keep up with that mess is just shocking. Tell, just tell the truth. I mean, we've all done it. We've all been there. It makes it really hard to treat, too. Medicinally, let's say an anorexic person uh, who I've worked with sometimes. Yeah. Um, I see a person that could have just come from Auschwitz. Sure. You know, skin and bones. They see when they look in the mirror someone who's fat. They reject that truth that you, yeah they're emaciated. You have to weigh them backwards because if they see that they've gained a half a pound, they'll do anything it takes to undo that half a pound. Yeah. No matter how you try to say you're you're dying, you're killing yourself here. You know we have to turn that around. The the power of the mind to deceive you is unbelievable. And the, right. and the difficulty in treating it the longer it goes on is they're one of the hardest types of patients to treat. 
because their mind is so sold. And of a lie. Yeah. That, thank you. That's a great example. <clears throat> uh, from the bottom of Sunday's lesson, quote, as the final events unfold, the side we are on will only become more apparent. What choices can we make right now to make sure we're on the right side? Is it accurate that the final, as the final events unfold, we, the side we're on will become more apparent? I, I dispute that. I don't think that it will be more apparent. Here's some evidence for why I believe that. From Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring them into my barn. What's, what's Christ trying to tell? What was he telling his disciples and listeners at the time? What's he telling us in this parable? Sometimes you can tell a difference between a weed and a plant. Sometimes you can't. Oftentimes, if you've ever had a flower garden or a vegetable garden, do the weed, do the roots of the weeds stay, do they intertwine with the roots of the plants or do they just kind of stay to themselves? Okay, so if you uproot a weed, you might damage the plant. This is from Christ. Go ahead. Uh, there's also Matthew 7.22 where many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. So there will those be those who deceive themselves to think they're doing right. They and who have deceived others. I, I once heard, I once heard a, a, a minister say that if we get to heaven, we'll be surprised in three ways. Number one, we'll be surprised that we're there. Number two, we'll be surprised that all the people that we thought should be there aren't there. And number three, we'll be surprised that all the people that we thought had no chance of getting there will be there. From Christ's object lessons, this is a, a, a an unfolding of that parable I just read. Christ has plainly taught that those who persist in open sin must be separated from the church, but he has not committed the work of judging character to us, the work of a judging character and motive. He knows our nature too well to entrust this work to us. Amen is right. Should we try to uproot from the church those whom we suppose to be spurious Christians, we should be sure to make mistakes. Often we regard as hopeless subjects the very ones who Christ is drawing to himself. Were we to deal with these souls according to our imperfect judgment, it would perhaps extinguish their last hope. Many who think themselves Christians will at the last be found wanting. Many will be in heaven who their neighbors supposed would never enter there. Man judges from the appearance, but God judges from the heart. The tares and wheat, referencing the parable, are to grow together until the harvest, and the harvest is the end of probationary time. There is in the Savior's words another lesson, a lesson of wonderful forbearance and tender love. As the tares have their roots closely intertwined with those of good grain, so false brethren in the church may be closely linked with true disciples. The real, real character of these pretended believers is not fully manifested. Were they to be separated from the church, others might be caused to stumble. Who but for this would have remained steadfast? The teaching of this parable is illustrating God's own dealing with men and with angels. Satan is a deceiver. When he ascended in heaven, even the loyal angels did not fully discern his character. This is why God did not once destroy Satan. Had he done so, the holy angels would not have perceived the justice and love of God. Let that breathe a little bit. 
a doubt of God's goodness would have been as evil seed that would yield the bitter fruit of sin and woe. Therefore, the author of evil was spared fully to develop his character. Throughout long ages, God has borne the anguish of beholding the work of evil. He has given the infinite gift of Calvary rather than leave any to be deceived by the misrepresentations of the wicked one. For the tares could not be plucked up without danger of uprooting the precious grain. And shall we not be as forbearing toward our fellow men as the Lord of heaven and earth is toward Satan? So this is, this is the, my evidence that leads me to disagree with the statement that as final events unfold, the side we are on will only become more apparent. I don't think it will become more, I don't think it will become apparent until the new heaven and new earth is recreated. And after the third coming and after the destruction of the wicked. That's all, that's the last, and, and when the, the doors to the holy city are open and no one chooses to come in. That's when it'll be settled in, in, in humans' minds about why isn't my son here? Why isn't my dad here? Why isn't my neighbor here? Earlier we were talking about fear. And how many people get excited about the unpardonable sin? And Christ himself said that when you grieve away the Holy Spirit, that can't be forgiven. We also know that the Holy Spirit works on the heart, which you can't determine and I can't either. So it seems to me like the scary part of the unpardonable sin is to resist truth and spiral deeper and deeper into my deception so that whenever truth smacks me in the face, I won't accept it. That's right. That's design law. That's how God designed humanity to operate. He created a, a brain with us and, and gave us portions of the brain that respond to the, the wooing of the Holy Spirit. And even the unforgiveness of not listening to the Holy Spirit is, again, design law. That's what happens to your brain. Well, the word gets translated as unpardonable or unforgiving, but it's, it's simply a state that humans get into where they're, they're, so, they're so settled into the belief of a lie that no amount of truth can reach them. Okay, this is why Satan was removed from heaven. He sinned, uh, literally, the covering angel of God himself. Ellen White says that the, no, there was no great, there was no created being who had a better knowledge of, of God's character than Lucifer himself. And he chose, he chose rebellion. What else could God have done to reveal his character? Okay, humans were deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned willingly. We had, we still had a hope. We still had a chance in the, in the, accurate and adequate revelation of truth of of god's character of love this is why christ had to come and die and be resurrected because because humanity still had a chance of reconciliation lucifer did not so when we get to second coming of the lord third coming of the lord those who have those who have married themselves to the lie will still be married to it until the realization of truth starts burning through that lie, and they and then it starts dawning on them what they've done, the choices they've made, the the uh, healing re remedy rejected, and they wail and gnash their teeth. And that's when every knee will bow. Yes, but. And then they will admit, your ways are just, Lord, but it's not a change of character. You know, those of us who believe a lie, we can still acknowledge truth verbally, but we don't believe it still. We don't believe it. Well, I think one of the saddest things when Ellen White draws back the curtain of what happened in heaven, she says that at some point the angels he was deceiving, many of the angels he was deceiving, started to see, feel that this may not be the wrong path. Right. And when they were going to disconnect, Satan said it was too late for them. But right. it wasn't too late for them. It was too late for Satan because he knew the absolute depth of God's character and so on. To deceive those angels into thinking it was too late for them. I mean, that's one of the saddest things in history. And, you know, to be responsible for all those beings that might not have been put in this situation that they're in now. Right. Well, you know, he used the same device with humans. 
You know, you, oh, you, you need to, you need to stop smoking before you, before you come to God. You, you should probably put down the wine before you, you should need, you better get yourself in better shape. God hates sin and this is sin. So you better, you better stop that before you, before you go to God. He uses the same, same tactics with us. From Monday's lesson, this is Daniel and the second coming of Jesus. The lesson asks us to focus on Daniel 2, which is Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the, of the multi, multi-tiered idol and its import regarding the eventual kingdom of God. Um, so, obviously the dream came to Nebuchadnezzar. Was Nebuchadnezzar at that time, was he a, was he a believer in truth? Was he... Was he operating on the principles of love presented in truth presented in love and leaving people free to decide, or did he have a maybe a different God construct? Especially when he turned around and built the idol to represent himself. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know the lesson. The lesson talks about it. You know being. Um, you know the. These verses leave, um, well, hang on, I'm getting ahead of myself, never mind. So, God was trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar through the dream. Why? Well, what was, what, for what purpose? Well, God's always been trying to reach all of his children on this planet. Thank you. And how more effective can you possibly be is when you have touched the heart and mind of a leader of a nation. And one of the greatest powerful nations on the planet, Babylon, at the time. At that time, Nebuchadnezzar was king of the world. And so he did convince Nebuchadnezzar that he has the power and the influence to convince the rest of God's children a lot more effectively than just one individual at a time. That's dead on. And thankfully, Daniel preserved it in his memoirs, passed it along to us. What does the earth? What does the dream tell us about earthly kingdoms? Temporary. Yeah. They're temporary. And God can control them. I don't know that the dream tells us that. And well, he foresaw it before it happened, so somehow he had to make sure it happened so it would be foretold accurately. Put people in the right place. At the right well, just because he saw it beforehand doesn't mean that he intervened to make it happen just to prove himself right. Um, so what are the prophecies if he has no control of making sure they come true? If I let go of these glasses, I predict they will fall to the ground at a rate of 9.81 meters per second squared. They will accelerate at a rate of 9.81 meters per second squared. Now, because I've predicted that, do I have to let them go in order to make my prediction accurate? No, I don't. In fact, I'm going to choose not to. So the fact that something happened exactly 1,260 years later, he had nothing to do with that? It was all happenstance? No, no, no. I don't think it was happenstance. It, it just, just, to me, it, it inspires a greater faith in, in the, the God of heaven to, to know that he, he predicted what's going to happen but didn't intervene to make it happen. If he gives people the power of choice and has no intervention whatsoever... Then when he predicts something would last exactly 1,260 years, he's leaving a lot of chance of people to make choices that don't agree with how that with that outcome. But to know it ahead of time, well, like- I mean, to know to know the choices that people are going to make ahead of time. But to know the exact day and year when they still have the power of choice for it to not happen. That's right. But uh, but just because God knew something was going to happen, I don't think he. He was moving pieces on a chessboard to make it happen just to prove himself right. He would be a control freak if he did that. I think he can use his people to influence others, like he influenced Martin Luther to come. Oh, yeah, I, I don't disagree there. I, I, don't, I think he's absolutely, he's intervening in harmony with his, with his character of truth and love and freedom. I'm saying he can still honor people's power of choice, but he can use influential people in his as he's watching events on earth to make sure that things do happen a certain way, but he's not forcing anyone to do anything, but he is using people who respond to his um, 
is the Holy Spirit that's prompting them to do certain things so that the stage will be set so that something will happen because their choices are predictable. I think it's more than that. It looks like if you read a book. I mean, I, I know the part of the book I've read. I don't know the part of the book I haven't read. Mm -hmm. But if you've read the whole book, no matter at what point in history you are, you'll know what's ahead. You'll know what people chose, what they didn't choose, what was the result of that. Even to your own interventions, what would be the response of that? Jesus coming, for example. You know, it's, it's like he's read the entire book already. He's already seen the choices, what will happen, and he's just telling you ahead of time, mostly just to help us feel uh, trust that we can trust that he does know what's going to happen. He does, he does know our futures. He, he isn't. That's where predestination comes in. It's yeah. Like, you know, I, I've, I've seen you since you were born, and now I know I'm going to make you be this way. I'm going to have you be this way, and you're going to be that way. I formed you to be this, rather than I know what you're going to choose in response to what I send your way. Right. Christ knew that Judas would betray him. Did Christ, did Christ um, set the stage for Judas to betray him? Did he, did he intervene in, in setting up certain situations to make, to make the environment more fertile for Judas to betray him? Well, I'm trying to develop a trusting relationship, but Judas had the power of choice to say, no, I choose what I choose. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Christ set up any, I think Christ loved Judas as much as he loved Peter. And John, maybe, maybe he loved him more, he yearned for him more because he knew ahead of time what was going to happen. And tried and and actually, I want to suggest that he he set up situations and conversations to lead him away from the path that he knew he was going to choose. So I don't think correlation is causation here with the the um, the setting the or the setting up of the the dream about the earthly kingdoms. So let's let's move on a little bit. What is so we what does it tell us about earthly kingdoms? They're temporary. They will eventually be forgotten. You know, at the end of the dream, they're, they're ground to dust, and the wind blows the dust away, and where did the dust go? What does it tell us about God's kingdom? What does the dream, the dream alone, what does the dream tell us about God's kingdom? That's forever. And? Because the whole earth. It tells us it's big and powerful and lasts forever. Does the dream tell us all we need to know about God's kingdom? No. It told Nebuchadnezzar what he needed to know about God's kingdom because that's the God construct he believed in. He, he with a pagan mindset, the biggest, most powerful God's a winner. Well, that's the one I need to believe in. So he's trying. He's trying to reach into the mind of a pagan king and shed some light. Okay, okay. You, you, Nebuchadnezzar. You, you've built this magnificent city. You think that uh, it's going to last forever? I need to. I need to bring some light into your mind. There's a different kingdom coming. It's bigger and more powerful than yours, and it will last forever. Doesn't tell us. That's all it tells. That's all the dream tells us about God's kingdom. I think once again, it was God speaking the language that the individual would best hear and hopefully respond to. Right. And that attempt to build, again, as the gentleman said, that trust relationship to be able to speak to the heart. The, uh, the lesson has us to read Daniel 2, 34 and 35 and 44 and 45, which I'm not going to read. It's basically a encapsulation of the dream itself and it's, it's Daniel's interpretation of the dream which we all know well and the uh, the lesson says from these these verses leave a little ambiguity about what happens when Jesus returns did Nebuchadnezzar have any ambiguity about God's kingdom of course he did otherwise he wouldn't have went out and made an entire idol full of gold do we have any ambiguity about what's going to happen when Jesus returns? Yeah, I make idols of gold all the time. That's right. Thank you. Well, and he gave Nebuchadnezzar a little example of what will be when he returns, because there are 
Three Hebrews who refused to bow down and were thrown into the fire, but were able to exist in the fire without being burned. Uh, I'm going to skip over Tuesday's lessons real quick. The Tuesday's lesson talks about long-term prospects. And um, just on a personal note, I, I'm going to encourage each of you to think long hours on design law. Okay, this is the... When we started talking about design law six or eight years ago, all, all the all the pieces of the puzzle, or many of the pieces of the puzzle, in my head, just fell right into place. It's the it's the it's the foundation, it's the underpinning, it's the linchpin, however you want to phrase it, whatever metaphor you want to use. Of and it's it's the reason that that God has worked through this class to be to reach so many people. Design law versus imposed law. So get your minds around that first, okay? And do it and get a, get a good foundation of it before you start having any, any discussions with friends or loved ones. Because if you don't, you'll be using the same word and they'll have opposite meanings. Sin, forgiveness, love, all, all these words have two different justice. These words have different meanings, depending on which law construct you're you're arguing from. That's all I have to say about that. In uh, Wednesday's lesson, lesson, lesson mentions a theory about Jesus' return being the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but what we consider to be the latter rain. I, I've never heard this theory. Has anyone else? Has anyone else heard the theory that that? Christ's return is simply an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on humanity. Yeah, I have you? I'd never heard it until I was studying for the lesson. I there's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit before his return. Yes, but I mean, the lesson mentions this theory that that is the return. It's a new one. It was a new one on me. <clears throat> I, mean, I think Scripture is pretty clear. It's going to be a literal return to earth. And for some, it will be deliverance. For others, it will be hell. This is... From the Great Controversy. And how many of you read the Great Controversy? I didn't read it until I was mid-30s. And it's a dark book. No, don't be deceived. It is a dark book with some dark language. It needs to be, it needs to be understood with, on the foundation of design law. Consider this passage. The firmament appears to open and shut. The glory from the throne of God seems to be flashing through. Mountains shake like reed in the wind, and ragged rocks are scattered on every side. There is a roar as of a coming tempest. The sea is lashed into fury. There is heard the shriek of a hurricane like the voice of demons upon a mission of destruction. The whole earth heaves and swells, swells like the waves of the sea. Its surface is breaking up. Its very foundations seem to be giving way. Mountain chains are sinking. Inhabited islands disappear. The seaports that have become like Sodom for the wickedness are swallowed up by the angry waves. Babylon the Great has come in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. This is Great Controversy, page 637. It's a dark passage from a dark book. An excellent book, mind you, but, but you need to read it with the right foundation. Um, so I, I don't think that this is a, I mean, I think scripture and, and inspired passage is quite clear. It's a literal, it's a literal coming. It will not be nuanced. It will not be, it'll be visible to every eye, literal seeing. I, I, this, this is said in me. And, uh, before we wrap up, I came across this text in Jude earlier this past week, um, which I had never read before, or I had read but had never comprehended before. Jude 22 and 23. On some have compassion, making a distinction, but on others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So apparently some can be saved by fear. I think it's better to save with love, but... I, you know, the God I believe in can save with fear. Yeah. 
side thing. So um, one of our faculty had gone to a conference on neuroscience and some of the, the molecular elements behind it. And they have found a snippet of a DNA code that is present in about 40% of the individuals in which they cannot learn without fear. Hmm. That they will have, if they've got the support of a permanent classroom and all this stuff, they're like, yeah, that's interesting, whatever. And they, they, are, they don't retain the knowledge. So in about 40% of the individuals, unless some element of concern is present, they don't retain the information. Exactly. I mean, like fear of a coming quiz or fear of failing a class or... Some type of a concerned element. Not scared out of your pants, but some element of come to attention. That's fascinating. Exactly. So I should have led with that. <laughs> anyway, I, it was a fascinating element when we were having this conversation about yeah. the elevator. So the, the, it begs the question in class, do we need to periodically, you know, set up to attention the individuals to try to get them to imprint more? Versus, versus the, the typical more affirming approach. Well, I mean, I can speak from personal experience that having been raised in a fear-based yeah. system, it makes it makes a love-based system that much more glorious. It makes a love-based system that much more attractive. It makes a, you know, a design, this is how life was designed to operate, a design lovers and pose law system that much more um, lovely. But you know how people, some people respond, they plan ahead, they get everything done on time and early even, and other people that say, boy, I respond well to pressure. We're going to pressure, yeah. When I know there's a deadline, or I better do this, or I'm going to be tired, or I'm going to do this, or, and there are a lot of people who just simply work better under pressure. Well, you know, thanks be to God that he, he, can, he has the abilities to save those who are afraid of him and bring them into a correct understanding after he comes and he can save those of us who who love and trust him already. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for being big enough to save with love and with fear. And we ask that you use whichever method to get uh, the attention of us and our loved ones. Uh, please, uh, we ask again that you guide Tim today in his prison ministry. Um, touch the hearts of the uh, the women that are listening to him. Touch the hearts of the guards that are uh, guarding the women. Touch, you know, make the ripples extend far beyond the walls of the prison. Uh, we, ask, uh, we thank you for the blessings you've given us uh, personally and corporately in this class, and we ask your continued guidance. Use us to hasten your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.